Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 28th episode with me, Niklas Berlumblad, and... With me, Richard Allen. So, Richard, we decided that we would talk about something that most people have probably forgotten today, network neutrality. What is it, and why was it such a big deal way back when? Yeah, so it's based on... Well, well, what is it? Is It's essentially saying we need regulation to force internet service providers, that's the people who you know, uh, domestically will connect us to the internet. Regulation needs to force them to treat all traffic equally. And, and there are different flavors, and we'll dig into what those different flavors are, but, but the core concept is to treat it equally. And the reason this became a big thing was because of a, a, a distrust of service providers, I think particularly in the United States, but but also more generally, and the, and the assumption was that at a certain t- point when those service providers, so people like Comcast and Verizon and AT and T and others, those are the big American companies, we've all got our equivalents in our countries, uh, that they were developing their own services. And the suspicion and the distrust was that they would try and preference their own services. So if they were selling a video streaming service, they would like make sure their video streaming service worked really well and other video service stream, streaming services, they would either degrade, which is a really important word, or which means slow them down and make them not work as well, or block altogether. So that was the assumption. These big, bad, evil companies that provide us with internet services are going to distort the internet for commercial reasons, and therefore we need regulation to prevent that from happening. And this sort of fundamental ideological point here as well that sort of comes from from internet architecture, isn't there? This this notion that anyone should be able to connect and build anything, and that there, I think that the way we use the phrase is permissionless innovation. The notion that That's you right. don't need to ask someone to innovate. So so tie us back to the the internet ideology of of the nineteen sixties here. Yeah, I mean, again, we've talked about this before, that sort of ideology that sort of helped the internet to grow. And it really was that. It was, that look, I've got a device uh, and my device could be doing anything. I don't need to ask anyone permission to to create that device. And it could be offering, you know, a, a web service or it could be offering an email service, whatever it's going to be. And as long as I've had an IP address, internet protocol address assigned to me correctly, uh, that's from the pool, there there has to be some control of that pool of addresses so that they are unique, because you can't have lots of people trying to use the same address. But as long as I've got an IP address, once I've connected to the internet, anybody else who's connected to the internet who knows my IP address should be able to find a way to get to my service. And the original notion was, and we don't want anyone getting in the middle of that and stopping those connections happening from person with a device connected to the internet offering some kind of service and person with a device connected to the internet who wants to access and or consume or engage with that service. So that was philosophically really important um, that, that we should be able to do that. It, it, and obviously that was at a time, again, we've talked about this before, that the internet when it was first created was really a set of protocols to connect universities and academics. There wasn't money involved. Uh, it wasn't a commercial business. Uh, and so, again, in the academic world, of course, you know, everyone's going to play fair and they're all going to connect with each other and they're all going to uh, be as open as they possibly can. You then introduce these commercial players and, aha, now we start to get nervous because these commercial players may have an interest in not enabling those you know, straightforward connections from anyone to anyone. 
Um, and again, there are different flavors to this because some people philosophically would say, look, everyone should have an, an equal, e- 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 you know, complete equality of access, i.e. their connection should run just as fast as everybody else's. And again, of course, in the commercial internet, that's not the case. You know, Google's got whacking great servers and loads of infrastructure that mean connecting to Google is going to be much quicker than connecting to, you know, my search engine that I build at home and connect to the internet. So, so of course, there's sort of inequality, but the extent to which you can block, i.e. stop access altogether, or degrade, uh, make access not work as well because of your because you're sitting in the middle somewhere, I think is at the heart of net neutrality. And then there's this other series of questions which says, look, should you be able to enhance? <laughs> should you be able to offer an even faster service? Or does that breach these principles of net neutrality? Mm-hmm. Um, there's cost. Uh, if, if some traffic costs money and other traffic is free, does that breach the principle of net neutrality? We, we dig into all these different flavors that came out along the way. Yeah. And so uh, one of the things I've learned over, over the podcast that we have done is that you always ask a very uh, pertinent question, and it's the question of harm. So let's do a bit yes. of a counterfactual. Let's, let's, think, let's think about the, the world in which Facebook is sort of coming to market. There's Friendsters, there's MySpace, and now there's no network neutrality. There's absolutely zero silch network neutrality. Um, and Facebook is trying to enter the market. How could the absence of network neutrality be a harm to Facebook? So walk us through sort of a, a scenario here. Yeah. So, um, again, we, we can actually look in the early days. One of the big concerns was over voice over IP protocols. So that's, mm. that's services like Skype. So we actually look, and, and the concrete sort of example is the assumption that um, internet service providers who are also providing voice telephony services would try and block or degrade uh, these free voice over internet protocol services like Skype. And the advantage would be that they favor themselves. Or they would say to the Skype, well, yes, you you know, <clears throat> we'll block you unless you pay us money. <laughs> Sit in the middle. And so we can read that across to something like social networking. Then the, the question becomes, you know, f- from a uh, a competitor's point of view, imagine a, a situation in which Verizon did a deal with Facebook so that Facebook is the only social network you can access on a Verizon uh, uh, internet connection and all the others are blocked. Now, that, that can sort of work two ways. One, you, you could argue, well, that's great for you know a Facebook, a big company, because if Verizon is going to pick one, they're going to pick the biggest because that's going to be the one that makes them most popular. Um, but from Facebook point of view, it might also mean that they're held to ransom because Horizon says, well, yeah, you may be big and popular, but if you don't give us X amount of money, <laughs> then we're, we're just going to enable Twitter and we're going to block Facebook. And so you start to get in this position of, of sort of commercial negotiations between the access provider and the service provider. And, and we, frankly, we don't know how that would play out um, because it hasn't happened. Uh, whether or not, whether it's because of market force or because of regulation, it didn't happen in that way. But but the assumption was that this would be a very different market in which social media, to use that example again, social media services are not competing with each other. They are competing with each other and having to do commercial deals with access providers and their popularity will depend on the terms of those deals. Um, and in and a sense, there's no doubt, actually. Yeah. There, no, but I think in a sense you could argue then that what the, what it would have done back in in the day would have been it would have provided the access providers with the right to pick winners and losers. Uh, they 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 didn't even have to do a commercial deal. They could just say we like you better than you, and so we're going to provide you with, uh, you know, 
unfiltered access to all of our customers, but you will have to pay a small toll because we, we're not quite sure about you in some way, right? But that would they, yeah. they would have been had the ability to pick winners. And again, the innovation you want to bring to the network would then have been gated on what the access providers liked and didn't like. And then you could argue the next layer of that is commercial, that you know who pays more, etc. But you don't even have to go there because at that point, if there's no network neutrality, if they have complete control over access, they, they can actually do that at will. Now I would that because it's a it's commercial economy. But but if you sort of if you really distill it down, that's the ability that the lack of network at least that's the fear that was yeah. at the time. That was sort of the, the ability they get. Yeah, and, and I think it's well founded because again, remember particularly um, at that time, it's, things have moved on a little bit now. But but still, if if you gave access providers the opportunity to to get everyone to pay a toll for running over their networks, I think they would ask for it. So, but certainly back then, you know, their investors were screaming out, and they, they felt that they were really suffering as these internet services came along and uh, um, ate their lunch. I think was a phrase, you know, and we're doing all these things, and and so I think that it was, you know, there were really really legitimate concerns that that these access providers were sitting there going, what's our future business model while extracting money from people who run their services over ours is the way to do it. How do we extract money? Well, an obvious way is to say, you know, we're going to block or degrade your service if you don't give us money. It's a a protection racket kind of thing. And that would have been, you know, a a very obvious way for them to do this. Um, if If two things don't hold them back. One is obviously regulation if they're not forbidden in regulation or the other is market forces i mean i mean and that and that really was the argument i don't think it's well, i don't think anyone in their right mind would say that network neutrality in the, in, in the sense of there being the widest possible choice of internet services for the consumer is a good thing like it's clearly a good thing i think the debate essentially is um, whether you believe that regulation is necessary or market forces alone are sufficient to protect network neutrality and the market force there would say, look, if an internet service provider came along and said, right, I'm now just going to allow Facebook and I'm going to block Twitter, that customers would leave that service provider in droves and go to a competitor who gives you Facebook and Twitter. Um, and again, a lot of the regulatory debate, or the debate about whether regulation was necessary, was whether or not you believed that market force was sufficient or whether you were so suspicious of these people that you thought, uh, well, a, a they you know they're just going to go for it anyway, and the market forces w- wouldn't be strong enough. That if someone offered you just a Facebook only service, you wouldn't lose customers. You could you could carry on with that. And b wh- whether or not they would end up acting as, a, as effectively a sort of cartel, because there's actually only a very small number of access providers in most countries, both fixed line and mobile. So, you know, if if there are three or four of them, does that provide enough uh, competitive pressure such that if one of them did something stupid like (laughs) blocking twitter and only allowing facebook that there would be somewhere else for people to go where they could register their disapproval and reverse that yeah but that whole so it's all complicated it's really interesting i think that the relationship between telcos and what they refer to as over-the-top companies what you and i refer to as as perhaps consumer internet companies or social networks search etc that relationship i think has shaped a large part of how we understand internet policy today and and the and, and sort of if we dig into the argument and we try to really find uh, the salient pieces here one of the things i remember very clearly from the negotiations in the oecd 
over the the final text in the the future of the internet ministerial that that was in 2008 just dating myself here saying how old i am yes um one of the discussions there was actually really interesting because the telco providers didn't just say we want the ability to charge and pick winners that wouldn't have gone over well with any no. policymaker they had a much more ingenious argument which was this hey policymaker you want us to invest in next generation internet broadband. You want us to lay fiber, you want us to build servers, you want us to make sure that the internet can be accessible to anyone. You want to have last mile to people who live God knows where, the most remote parts of the country. This is a massive investment. We're willing to make it, but you have to make it possible for us to recover that investment in some way. You have to leave us some commercial leeway to negotiate here. And you should be confident in doing so because we will only use the commercial opportunity that we have within existing law. We won't be able to violate competition law. Of course not. We'd never do that. And competition law has been around since ever. And so you don't need any special regulation. You just need to give us this ability to recover our own investments in the fiber that you so desperately want as a policy objective. And we won't fall afoul of competition law. We won't fall afoul of consumer law. Those already regulate all this, and there's no need for network neutrality. What do we say to that argument? Yeah, I mean, you've characterized it absolutely accurately. It was that they were making this investment argument. I mean, there's sort of two, two counters. One is, look, the future of providing an access service was going to end up being that somebody comes and buys what they call a bucket of bits. So we, we're we not going to be buying individual bits of service. And that's sort of what's ended, ended up happening. And then, then the question, you know, and the bucket of bits means that they're literally just selling you like bandwidth and they're not, they're no longer trying to make money by all these differentiated voice services and this service and that service. Um, uh, and, and we sort of end up there. And then the question, if you want the investment, the way that you get that is you say, look, um, in a competitive market, if that bucket of bits is worth a lot to people, they're, they're going to be willing to pay for it and that will pay for the investment. You don't need to cream something extra off the top. And, and in this argument, it says, look, the, the value that Google and Facebook and Twitter and all these other companies give to consumers is so high that they are going to be willing to pay. And I think in the US, people are paying like $100 a month for that bucket of bits. They're not not paying the $100 a month because they like having a cable being stuck in the house. They're paying that because they value the services, often free at the point of use, that they get from all these other people at $100 a month. Uh, um, So so you can see in some countries that the cost of those connections is now actually quite healthy and provides uh, quite a healthy return. So that's sort of one counter. Um, The other, though, where I have a little bit more sympathy, I don't I don't see the other argument they're making, which is you don't need to regulate because we're not going to do the bad thing. Um, you need <laughs> to leave us, you know, still with the freedom to, to do the bad thing, even though we're not going to do it. It's kind of, but but the bit I, I um, have more sympathy over, and perhaps not surprisingly, having, having sort of lived through it from the Facebook point of view, is where services wanted to offer or access providers wanted to offer some kind of enhancement to their service as a market differentiator. So so again, there are two different flavors of net neutrality. One just says, look, you shouldn't be blocking or degrading services. And again, I think that that's one's absolutely right. Um, but should you be able to offer extra on top for various kinds of services? So for example, uh, take it away from social media, but you have a, a gaming service where you're saying, look, my internet access is going to be better for your Xbox Live gaming than anybody else's because I've configured it 
to give an, some kind of advantage to Xbox Live Gaming. Um, you know, you can still access PlayStation Gaming or any other gaming, but we've done something special, you know, that enhances Xbox Live Gaming. I actually have a, a little bit more sympathy with that, and a pure net neutrality position would say no, you know, because that service is disadvantaging or uh, relatively disadvantaging other other gaming services over Xbox Live. But I have a little bit more sympathy with that notion that if you want market differentiation, that you're, you are selling buckets of bits, but even within the sale of buckets and bits, should you be allowed some elements of product differentiation? Uh, and actually, you know, for a healthy market, sometimes that's a good thing. If somebody if somebody does want to sell a specialist gaming internet service, and they get you know a half a million loyal subscribers, they're not going for the twenty million mass market thing, but they want their half million loyal subscribers. I, 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 I'm less worried about that as a sort of intervention in the market than I would be about anyone doing blocking or degrading. I think I think I think we I mean I think the first answer to to the question that you you pose is a really good one it's that telcos would argue we're doing all this fiber investment and we have a number of companies free riding on that investment providing services and making money from advertising that we can't recover and so we need some way to be able to recover that and they had several different possible solutions for this one was to eliminate network neutrality and allow them to charge differently another was to essentially allow them to to license um, hmm. the, the networks for, for different uh, actors so that everyone would have to pay and sort of, and not an internet tax but a fee a levy of some kind to, to the telco providers um, and then of course the comeback there which I think you characterized really really well is well you know why people are actually buying broadband services you know why there's demand for broadband services is because there is video streaming there is social networking there is gaming all of these different things so so that part that part I think is is uh, and I remember this has sort of been a back and forth and back and forth for a long time and still I think is, is a contentious issue within the telco internet debate the the, the other point that you make about differentiation interestingly i think they won the telcos won that but mm. not in the consumer space but in the business to business yeah. space and there i think it's called specialized services under the umbrella of industry 4.0 the idea being that if you want to buy an extraordinarily high quality of service for a connection because you're dependent on it for your manufacturing or some other other kind of industrial use then it's fine for the telcos to actually differentiate across different specialized services and across for example quality of service requirements um, and and so at that point, uh, network neutrality dissolves. It was always very much a consumer issue, which brings us back to the other question. I I don't think that we've addressed um, the sort of the what I think and still think is one of the strongest arguments from the telco side, which is this: Look, it's not that you leave us alone to do the bad thing; we won't do the bad thing. It's you leave us alone, and there's legislation you already put in place that stops us from doing the bad thing. There's no space for us to do the bad thing. The competition law would come down on us like a ton of bricks if we tried to, to pick winners. And consumer law would come down on us as a ton of bricks if we, we tried to differentiate services for consumers. It's, it's very clear that within that space, and I think that was a large part of the technical debate among lawyers mm. over network neutrality. And even in the US, I remember, I think, I don't, I, I'll, I'll get this wrong, but I think Christopher Yu made a very strong argument that there is no space for the kind of behavior that unfortunately neutrality tries to regulate, even within the existing legal framework. And that has been, I think, a recurring theme in a lot of the discussion around the internet legislation. We need new specialized platform legislation. Well, what about the already existing consumer law 
competition law, etc. Is there a thing there that's not being dealt with? And and in network neutrality, we set the pattern of not asking that question, but putting new regulation in place, which then recurs again and again in platform regulation and, and in other kinds of technology regulation as well. There's like a There's almost like a willful ignorance of the existing old legacy legislative frameworks in favor of new technology regulation, partly, I think, because there's a PR value to it, but also partly because because there's there's this innate sense of insecurity as to whether or not the existing law could actually solve the problem. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And there were strong arguments made in the US in particular uh, that there were existing powers that would stop the bad behavior if ever it occurred. Um, but you kind of had to wait for it to... It was a question of sort of ex ante, ex post. Uh, you know, what the argument for nature regulation was say, let's put something in ex ante that prevents the bad thing ever happening. The other mode says, let's make it ex post, that uh, an existing frameworks would have that effect that if you did the bad thing, either, you know, if you had sold something as an internet service, and you stopped offering the entire internet that you know someone the federal trade commission or something's going to come down to you like uh, uh, for misleading your customers um so that would act as a check and balance that there were actually rules within the federal communications commission's remit that allowed it to intervene if certain things happened and in europe um under the regulatory framework there certainly would be ability to intervene particularly if the bad things was being done by somebody who was deemed to have significant market power. And that in Europe typically meant somebody who was a, a sort of former incumbent telecoms company. Um, again, under under sort of specialist competition rules for the telecom sector, um, which we've had in Europe for a long time, based on this sort of notion that in many cases, there's only going to be one wire, the one fiber that goes into people's houses, and therefore we have a special regime to govern, govern that. Um, under that, again, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of people who said, well, look, we could take action if the bad thing happened. So really it was a debate between, again, I maybe some people in the telcos were secretly <laughs> uh, plotting to do the bad thing, uh, but they wouldn't say it. They would say, no, we're not going to do the bad thing. We, we just think this regulation is excessive. Um, so in a sense, everybody was saying that, you know, we're against the bad thing, <laughs> which is cutting off bits of the internet. And then the argument was, did you think you needed an ex-ante framework explicitly preventing the bad thing? Or were you comfortable to rely on an ex-post framework that would say, under existing rules, we are confident that if someone tries to do the bad thing, particularly if it's a major player, particularly somebody with this sort of significant power in the market, that we can come in and stop them before the harm happens? Uh, and that's partly a, cl- a classic sort of you know uh, debate that we have in in, in technology policy circles. But I think you did also pick up something important, which is once you've accepted the notion of ex-ante regulation here, should you roll the same notion uh, of having some regulation to prevent a possible bad thing? Should you roll that over into other areas? For example, some people would say, well, we need platform neutrality regulation that echoes network neutrality regulation. Um, uh, And so then you end up in the situation where platforms may have argued for network neutrality regulation that then comes back to bite them because the same principles are rolled over onto the platforms who are accused similarly of favoring or disfavoring certain people. Um, And so people will take exactly those arguments and say, well, we need a framework that ex-ante will prevent that from happening on a platform. 
And that happened, of course, because that's what we're seeing now in the DMA. We're seeing that in, in competition policy discussions, etc. And I mean, it, it, it dates back to an old paper by Frank Pascali about search neutrality, where he takes all of the network neutrality concepts and models and applies them to, to search engine and essentially says the same argument holds true here. And, and it's not as if he does that to invalidate network neutrality. It's just accepting the hypothesis of network neutrality as a valid and sound one and then extending it to other kinds of services once they reach a certain level of of, of incumbency, and that's that's a, that's another uh, interesting dynamic here, because to to some extent, um, you cannot understand network neutrality. I think if you don't understand the incumbent challenger dynamic, uh, there is a large and powerful player uh, with significant political power. I know very few other actors in the tech policy space uh, that have as much lobbying power as the telcos do. I think. And, and then you have a number of nascent companies who, when this was being discussed back in 2006, 2005, sort of when the first network neutrality discussions came up, it was a really blatant asymmetry of power between the actors, between the, the, the internet companies and the telcos. And so it was also part of a power struggle. Um, and today you could argue that maybe those conditions have been to a certain degree leveled out to this, you know, the telco's favorite frame, phrase, level playing field uh, to a much greater yes. degree. So maybe you should allow levies or specialized services to a much greater degree today because there's not the same asymmetry. Um, what do you think about that argument? Yeah. So, so I think, um, again, I think the dynamics were quite different in Europe and the US. Oh, this is a good uh, point. Again, because of because of the telecoms regulatory framework. So in the US was still sort of going for the notion that um, several companies would put wires into your house. And they had this massive, massive incumbent Comcast who began with cable TV being challenged at that time, particularly by Verizon and AT&T who were um, more telephony companies, uh, but they're all converging around providing internet services. But they they, they, they were, say, were the, those um, companies were not required by regulation to give anyone else access over their wires or cables. They, they own them. They could do whatever they like with them. Um, and the idea was that we're going to get lots of people to build out the infrastructure. In Europe, on the other hand, because most countries were coming from having had a nationalized government-run a single massive network with some new challenges sort of coming into the space. In many cases, the regulation said that the government network, which reached every house in the country, um, did have to, by regulation, open up to the challenges. And so there where I think you had a different dynamic, uh, one perhaps which is slightly sort of less motivated to drive the net neutrality regulation was that some of those challenges were looking precisely to build <laughs> their business model on some kind of differentiation. So I think some of those would have liked the regulation only to apply to the big old fat incumbent network. Uh, but actually, they were quite like a lot of freedom. And, and they are they are actually, you know, had some kind of strong pro-consumer argument to say, look, don't bind us. Because in the future, it's us, us plucky little challengers who are offering internet access services, but we're the ones that are going to shake this market up and make it more competitive. Um, whereas, it, say, very different dynamic, I think, there, uh, where you had these regulated, massive, former state-owned incumbent companies versus a U.S. market where it, it had always been private, um, but very different sort of uh, uh, footprints. The companies have different footprints. Actually, lots of local telcos in the U.S. as well, uh, uh, little localized companies. It's a very different sort of models that we had uh, in, uh, between the Europe and the U.S. 
I agree. I think that's right. And I, I also remember one to to sort of to really another thing that one needs to take into account to sort of really understand this. I think is the ongoing discussions about functional and structural separation that we saw right. in the OECD, for example. So the idea being that that uh, you should make a separation between owning the network and operating the network and offering services on the network. And this came back in in different shapes and forms in in what is sometimes referred to as as unlit or black fiber. That if you build a fiber network, you should provide access to anyone who wants to operate services on that network to do so in order to maximize competition and maximize consumer benefit. And and that discussion was ongoing at the same time. So, So if you're a telco at this point, you're asked to make a massive investment you're asked to divest yourself of your network assets and you're asked not to try to negotiate any commercial deals to allow you to recover any of those costs, the investments in the existing legacy network or the investments in the new network. So you're in this desperate situation, right? And, you're, and I think it's interesting because to a certain extent, the incumbent challenger dynamic then recurs in other businesses as well. So, so telcos were essentially looking at this and they're saying, look, it seems to me that we have two different choices here, Australia. One choice is to to try to climb the value chain as much as we can and see if we can build our own social network, our own chat, our own search engine. Can we sell advertising? Can we build all of these things? Can we sort of climb up there to the over the top providers and, and try to to, to compete with them. And, and many telco providers had this as a serious option. I mean, one that comes to mind is Telefonica, uh, who's, who's reputedly has a strategy um, document with the title, We Choose It All, which I think is, is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, and, then, and then on the other side, you had those who were saying, look, I think that what we should do is to slim everything down, offer us effective, uh, to your point, buckets of bits as possible, and try to make money off of volume. It will be small margins, but it will be effective. And as volume grows, that's what we're going to do. And it's sort of the the dumb pipes version or the climb the value chain version. And that's where they're sitting. And, and they're quite rightful. You can understand their consternation. They're trying to sort of make this really important strategic choice. And at the same time, especially in Europe, to your point, they're seeing a lot of uh, virtual operators coming in on the network and disrupting them in different ways uh, and, and really requiring to have exactly the same access to the infrastructure as they have and the infrastructure that they built over decades and decades and feel very strongly about that this is their, their infrastructure. So, so you can understand to a certain degree that when there is this discussion about functional and structural separation, devising of the legacy network and no way to actually invest in the new network and recover that, it puts them in a, I think it sort of puts them in a mindset and in a situation that, that almost forces them to become very aggressive policy players. And and they become very aggressive policy players. If you trace their evolution from 2005 and forward, they invest massively in organizations. They, at one point or another in several European companies, they had, you know, one-on-one matching for parliamentarians, more or less. They were sort of the, they were were among the (laughs) most um, efficient, uh, but also I think, massively funded policy operations that that I ever encountered and I was uh, I was amazed at this and I think it was just it was not until much later that I realized why they did this they they were really experiencing this as an existential threat I think don't you Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. And um, while we're being um, sympathetic to our friends in the telecoms companies, we spent a lot of time <laughs> over the years, haven't we, with them? And they, I mean, yes, they generally yes. are friends in telecoms companies. At, at the same time as all as the scenarios you just described, they were also 
I'm trying to figure out what to do about mobile. Yes. Uh, and mobile, you know, was taking off. And, and they were being, you know, um, asked by governments to make multi-billion dollar bets as they were being offered bits of spectrum and licenses and things. And, of course, all of that was subject to regulation as well. So you've, you've got them uh, thinking about all different aspects of their business, their kind of core uh, wires business, the, the connection to people's houses, which you say is being threatened by, from their point of view, all kinds of regulation. It's not no longer their business to do what they like with, but they might have to open up to competitors. The pricing is going to be regulated, all that. They're uh, thinking about uh, often content or services businesses. Uh, and again, whilst we're, we are friends with them, I think they would recognize in many <laughs> cases those didn't work. Uh, you know, they, they yeah. were not able to, to for whatever reason, to be as successful. Uh, and often they would buy. They would buy, you know, bits of internet uh, companies and things like that, but often weren't as successful as the as the large players. Um, uh, uh, and then the third aspect is this sort of mobile aspect of they're sort of betting against themselves. Uh, and that's what's happened. You know, so how were how they going to cope with people uh, dropping the landline services because they were buying mobile services, which maybe offered by a traditional telecoms provider, but maybe somebody else altogether. And certainly in, in BT was interesting. They sold their mobile business. So for a, I mean, they bought, bought it back again now. But for a long time, British Telecom, the big traditional incumbent telecoms provider in the UK, didn't have mobile. They decided, no, no, we're just going to focus on the wires business. Um, and you know, and others were were making different bets. Some were sort of betting everything on mobile and, and in the sense sort of downgrading a little bit their traditional wires business. But each business had to make these strategic discussion, uh, strategic decisions, uh, and every single aspect of their business was being affected by the regulatory packages that were going through. Um, I think also the shareholding, uh, questions sort of becomes really significant. These are often te- telecoms businesses, old, well-established businesses that are paying dividends every year, and the value of their stock depends on that dividend. So, if something comes along that shaves away at their profit margins, their dividends go down, their stock plunges uh, potentially. Whereas the internet companies, we were working for, is different. They are value stocks where you, where people were betting on the future value of that company. They're not paying. It's not about the dividend that Google or Facebook's going to pay next year because they don't pay dividends. It's the fact that you know people can see a sort of huge growth in their income over ten years. That means that people are going to, if they feel confident, are going to keep investing in those stocks. So again, from a, a telecoms point of view. If company point of view, if if regulation notches their profit margin down a percent or two, that can reduce their stock price. If their stock price goes down, their ability to borrow for the investment they need for those uh, radio spectrum licenses or that fiber infrastructure is going to be much harder for them to get. So a lot of them felt, you know, they risked sort of going into a death spiral of uh, reducing stock value, which meant reduced ability to raise money on the markets, which meant reduced ability to invest, which meant you know, their services are just going to degrade over time. And so, again, I'm, I'm, I am hope it doesn't sound negative, I'm being sympathetic to what I very much saw as a dynamic yeah. uh, that occurred in those companies. And I think that's right. And I think that, that to a large degree, it's it's also why it wasn't only network neutrality, if we sort of expand our view a little bit, it was also about trying to get this new sector into telco regulation frameworks and sort of trying to get internet companies in there. And I, I vividly remember one conversation that I had with a representative of one of the telcos, right? 
said, look, I get it. You want a level playing field. That's one of the things that they've recurringly, this became the mantra, I think, in a, to a large degree of the telco sector. But why don't we level it down? Why don't we try to sort of look at what's reasonable and not reasonable within the telco package? And it's it's not inconceivable that we could come out and support deregulation, liberalization of the telco sector. And, and he just shook his head and said, you don't understand. We've invested in compliance. We've invested in regulation. We've invested in lawyers. We've invested in this whole infrastructure to take care of this particular pain. We now just want to share it. And so, so that was that was that, that was that, and and, and and that goes to and that also I think goes to an incumbent mindset. Another part of this that I think is is not uh, trivial is is that they also employed millions. Uh, many of these companies had an yeah. enormous, uh, enormously large workforces, and and they didn't see a good way to sustain those over time. And if you reduce the workforce of just Deutsche Telekom of ten percent, we're talking about not a hundred people, but thousands, potentially tens of thousands, and even hundreds of thousands of people that they would have to let go. And the the again, if you think from a shareholder perspective, the overall public image and you know their standing in society, all of that would sort of go downhill. So so they're in a difficult position, mm-hmm. and they're they're. Aggressive defense against the notion of network neutrality is quite understandable. But if you look at where we ended up today, um, it's it's fair to say that they they lost the network neutrality debate when it comes to the consumer internet, but they still seem to be winning it when it comes to the business to business internet. Isn't that doesn't that look at like where we are? Yeah, today? yeah. I think I think that you're right. There's there's an assumption that. Um, you know, uh, businesses. Th- there is a competitive market when it comes to businesses. So, so again, the the, the working assumption that lay behind net neutrality for um, net neutrality regulation for consumer services was that the market would not function. That if these big providers decided to shut out individual internet services, that that people would not be able to just switch in droves and therefore have a sort of market dynamic that drives that. Um, and then that would fundamentally damage the internet. But the notion that that uh, you know, if you're a business and you're looking for uh, bandwidth to move stuff around as a business, uh, that the notion that that needs to be regulated, I think, is a lot is is a lot weaker uh, because you you will if somebody doesn't provide for you, you will go to another provider. There are lots of providers who kind of rent bits of fiber or lay bits of fiber and rent those services out. Um, so I think there's that notion. I think the other thing, actually, again, in this whole debate that gets lost because we're outside of having just been sympathetic to the telcos, one of the arguments that um, is frequently missed when when we're thinking about poor telcos, their revenues are declining, is that the big internet (laughs) companies like the Googles and Facebooks and people buy a hell of a lot of bandwidth from those big telcos. Um, And so there is a lot of investment that does go in from the internet companies. And that's, again, sometimes lost in the mix. But I remember when we were building data centers uh, and you're doing your data center selection, you know, you're looking at power and you look at this, but your big expenses are power and connectivity. Uh, and when you build a data center in Sweden, <laughs> you're, you're you know, first in the queue to offer to provide you with that connectivity for money is Teliasonera, the Swedish, uh, you know, old in- incumbent telecoms company, and that's going to be the same anywhere. So there is a lot of money going in to this sort of back office uh, uh, um, internet service stuff, including from you know the big internet providers. But that that hasn't and, and been it's not only seen back office, requiring the same kind of regulation. 
Right. And it's not only back office because this is, these are core parts of the new network. And so one of the weakest arguments, I think, if you look at the situation today is this notion that, that, uh, the over the top companies are not investing in the internet. I think it's, I think it's wrong because I think that the data center infrastructure, uh, a lot of the very smart routing, tons of different things that are coming from the tech companies are making the existing, um, uh, networks more efficient. And also actually there's real investment in transatlantic cables. There's like investment in fiber, there's investment in infrastructure. So, so I think that argument uh, can be safely removed from the table today. And, and even if we're sympathetic to the telcos, I think that's one of the, the absolutely weakest arguments when it comes to at least the large tech companies. And then the large tech companies yeah. could levy that against smaller tech companies and say, hey, we paid for this transatlantic cable and you're free riding off of that. But I think they, they're probably wiser than to, to do that because that would sort of put it all in a, in a very strange light. But, but, there's, but there's, another, there's another interesting thing that happened and, uh, over time, and that was that the network neutrality discussion sort of slid into a situation where really large players who who were m- moving from being challengers to to semi incumbent state looked at this and said, "Well, it, it wouldn't be horrible if people weren't metered on my services." And so maybe yes. maybe on a mobile phone, I could find some way to say put a scheme in place that we'd call zero rating, where if they use my services, that won't be counted against their bandwidth maximum. What, what's the, how does that fit into the picture here? Yeah, so, so I think if you are um, in the school of saying, you know, that the regulation should ensure some kind of e- equality between different service providers, then, then you will want to see that kind of zero rating um, prohibited and and people lobbied for that in Europe and and um, the, there are amazing places which I, I still think are sort of being interpreted but that at least framed as as preventing that kind of zero rating in in some circumstances. It does feel a little bit weird that re- regulation is saying you can't be given something for free. I mean, I mean, when you sort of stand back and go, well, if a service provider wants to give you something for free, why why shouldn't they? Um, uh, yeah, uh, so I think it's very, very difficult. I mean, the way those deals are often stack up is that there is a, a, effectively a sort of payment in kind that that the typically be a mobile company, the mobile f- phone company would say, and often it is services like Facebook and Instagram. My former employer, you can have as much free Facebook as or you Spotify, like on Spotify, streaming music, for example, could be Spotify. Yep. Yeah, and and the deal is, yeah, yeah. it may not involve necessarily money changing hands. What it may be is. Obviously, you are then granting that service provider the right to use your service to sell theirs. And back to what we were saying just a little while ago, people do not buy broadband because they want to wire or, or naked bits. They buy broadband because they love the idea of accessing Facebook and Google and Spotify and Netflix and all those kind of things. And so the deal is essentially that Facebook would do would be, Look, if you offer free Facebook, we will give you the rights to use Facebook extensively in your marketing material. And so you go out there and say, I'm offering you the only, you know, mobile service in my country where all of the Facebook is free. Um, and so I say there may not have been any money changing hands at all, but the service provider, the access, rather the access provider in this case, the mobile network is, is calculating that the cost of the extra bandwidth to them is easily outweighed by the num- the additional subscribers they will get because they're using this this 
evil over-the-top service as a core part of their marketing material when they're outselling their packages. Um, and again, I'd say I, I, my, my instinctive reaction, not just because I work there, but I do, it does feel a bit odd sometimes that regulation, you know, which you, you, you talked about the harm, like the harm here is that a consumer is getting something for free. It kind of doesn't feel that harmful unless you sort of go two or three stages down and go, well, the harm is down the track because the service that's being offered free will get stronger and that will somehow weaken the entire market because the competitors will be weakened. Now, you, you, you need to, you know, to, to come to that argument, you need to make the assumption that the offering of one service for free will inevitably make others weaker. Again, I'm not completely convinced by that. I, I can see why people might think that. Um, but I think to, to quite a large extent, the the move against zero rating, the move against offering things for free is one that says, look, these guys are just too big and powerful already. I don't want to see anything out there in the market that allows them to become even bigger and more powerful. And therefore, I'll look for a regulatory measure to stop them. I, I think that's more the rationale than, than sort of seeing any any individual consumer harm from somebody getting something for free. But it does. It, I'm 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 sort of I'm sort of with you yeah. there. But I would argue that it does allow them to pick winners a bit. If you take a more competitive market than social networking and search, and you say there are four or five really strong music streaming providers, for example, and uh, say that an incumbent, very large telco, says, "Hey, if you use our mobile services, you have access to all of these music streaming services." But yeah. this particular music stream service you get for free there's something in that 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 it, it is a soft power it's a soft picking of winners there's no absolute blocking or degrading of the other services but you know there is such a thing as free and not free and as long as the mobile internet yeah. is metered which might be the larger problem here by the way um it does seem yeah. seem as if, if there is there, there could be potential distortion effects there but but I, I think i think one of the things that we can't forget when we talk about zero rating is that that it, it looks very different for developing countries um, yes. So if you're in a developing market, for example, zero rating can be can be an extraordinarily efficient policy instrument in order to make sure that people really use the technologies they already use. You're boosting existing usage patterns, and you're trying to get as much benefit out of that as possible. So, so take Africa for example. Uh, what's the argument for zero yeah. rating there? So I think the the argument for zero rating, again, it'll depend on the country you're in, the specific countries you're in, but yeah. the argument for it tends to be that um, you're trying to, uh, and again, Facebook made this argument, people have different views on whether they made it effectively, but if you're trying to get people onto the internet, onboarded onto the internet, using it from a starting point where actually they don't see the value. The, the cost is relatively high compared with income. They're not seeing the value of this internet thing. That the zero rating is a way to, to sort of um, uh, get people uh, onto the internet using it. And I actually think that the telecoms companies, that's the way they thought of it. I mean, they, they didn't want to give it away forever. But the way they were thinking about it is, look, if I can get people through zero rating, because I've taken away this cost barrier, which which may only be you know a few cents, uh, um, but those few cents matter a lot in a in a particularly in a very um, poor country. By getting rid of the cost barrier, I've got them onto the internet. Now they're onto the internet. I can upsell them, and so I can upsell them additional services, more services. It's a way of building my user base that I can sell to. And actually, one of the really interesting examples was was uh, India, um, where internet.org uh, uh, reliance. Well, internet.org was there, but then then one of the telecoms telecoms companies came along and just gave like so many megabits of bandwidth a month for free. 
uh and and so that sort of blew yeah. away internet.org like it became not necessary because you know here was a major telecoms company just going like use my mobile internet and, and use my mobile service and you'll get a bunch of free uh, uh bandwidth and that turned out to be a very good business proposition i mean they were they were following the same logic which is once people have tried the internet they don't want to go back uh, but they did it just by giving away undifferentiated buckets of bits um and then when people use those up the working assumption of the business was i've now snagged the customers and i will be able to upsell them on bigger buckets of bits and more service over time um, but the logic always was for the in developing countries would say how do you get people out of that first hurdle if they've never paid for the internet uh, and they don't see the value in the internet to get them to see the value in the hope that they will pay in future and the, but it's an infected issue in many ways because zero rating in the development market can be looked at as a very important and powerful policy instrument. But it can also be cast in the shape of some kind of digital colonialism, where you say, "Here's yes. a small scale down version of the internet that you get for free, you people in developing countries, and that's what you get, and that's you know all you're going to get." And it could put a kibosh on investments in infrastructure and fiber and rollout and all those different things. And and that was sort of at least that's my read of part of the problems that that existed with the Internet of Org initiative, that it was it was perceived as as handing people a lesser version of the internet, whereas it wasn't compared to no internet, which was a reasonable comparison, but to the full internet. And and I yeah. I, I think it's I think it's interesting that it's not unlikely that the next big network neutrality debate will not be in Europe, where, yes, you point out there is sort of more and more competition and more and more regulation, or not even in the US, where I think that the Biden administration is reinstating the network neutrality rules and sort of setting rules for the world. But it might very well be in developing markets uh, in different countries like Nigeria or South Africa or even Kenya, or it could be in, in India, or it could be in Indonesia, other yeah. com- countries around the world where where those same conditions don't apply. And where network neutrality might be um, um, a question of equity and an equal access to the internet to a very different degree, don't you think? Yeah, and I think the debate has shifted now. So you're right; it may it'll shift between different countries. And again, my my favorite phrase is "political will" is really important to understand. I mean, the the, the sort of flip flopping in the U.S. between pro and anti is, is sort of an indication of what the political will is, which is which is perhaps the most important signal you send to your telecoms providers. If you say to your telecoms providers, you know, we the government are going to be really pissed off and do something if you if you start sort of differentiating between services and treating them badly, that's a really powerful signal, whether or not you back it up with formal regulation. If, on the other hand, the political will, the government says, look, hey, you know, all we care about is investment. And um, if to to get investment, you want to like pick some winners and uh, make more money, uh, great, have at it, then that's going to be a completely different environment. So I think we need to sort of sort of track what the political will is in different countries around the world, but but I do think there's also been a shift where that that digital colonialism thing I think has been recognised to an extent, and uh, I'm sure sure there'll be plenty of criticisms of, still of what's happening, but but I definitely saw a shift where t- towards um, investing in local infrastructure providers uh, rather than sort of trying to you know sh- shape the whole system. So there was a move towards saying how can we 
help uh, local uh, businesses get better at what they do? How can we provide them with technology and tools? Actually, the, the really simplest and, and um, in a sense sort of most effective thing, which is actually against net neutrality in some versions that they could do, was, was to develop caching services. That meant that a local provider... Mm could store most of the content for uh, its its local users locally and not end up paying huge amounts of bandwidth costs to, to sort of pull data from servers, you know, all around the world into that local provider. So if you're a local telecoms provider in a country um, which is connected to the internet but where those connections are expensive, it's the caching servers that you know, really help you lower your costs and deliver a better service to your customers. The better the service, the more likely they are to, to be willing to pay you money. Um, but again, question, <laughs> you know, to what extent do we have network neutrality when in, I don't know, Zambia, uh, the local Zambian telecoms company has a really nice fresh copy of most of the relevant Facebook and YouTube and Google data, uh, but not uh, the data from other companies that couldn't afford to to be part of that caching infrastructure. Um I mean, that's the reality. So that's really, really useful in terms of uh, the local telecoms company. It's what delivers for them, but arguably is not neutral. But it, uh, but it's another version of, of the same kind of problem. And I think you're right to call it out that, uh, that if you reinforce existing usage patterns, whether you do it through caching or you view, do it through uh, you know, access to more bandwidth or zero rating, if you start to reinforce those existing usage patterns, yeah. you're, you are, in a sense... Perhaps not picking winners, but you're sort of you're pushing winners a little bit further over the line, and you're sort of you're supporting winners in a way that 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 seems to be uh, or it could be problematic. But you could also argue that that if you're not doing that, you're doing people a great disservice. And I think it sort of suggests that it's also really hard for over the top companies to climb down the value chain and start offering yeah. infrastructure in different ways. And there is a, sort of a, there, there is a, an equal problem there that opens up an opportunity to those telcos that would be minded to think about how to offer access in more places if they were interested in doing so, because they have now developed protocols and ideas around how to offer a consumer internet that is largely characterized by the network neutrality principles that have been evolved in the US and Europe over time. And, and so I suspect that we will, I th- suspect that that will be at least one of the, the points of debate for network neutrality going forward. It, I mean, and then let's talk about the obvious thing. It seems to have almost all but disappeared from the from the policy table in Europe, and you know the way that it has appeared in 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 the U.S. is sort of a restoration of earlier law uh, back to to the FCC regulation of network neutrality after the Trump years. But it 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 doesn't if you. If you're looking at SSRN or if you're reading scholarship around tech policy, the number of articles that are sort of smoking hot off the presses about network neutrality have dwindled fairly fast. And the question doesn't seem to be engaging as many people anymore. Do you think think that this is one of the first tech policy issues that will be forgotten? Uh, Again, potentially, unless the political will changes. So I, I think what's happened in Europe is the political will was clear. Uh, you know, as I say, that everybody was against the idea of telecoms companies picking winners and losers. Uh, that was sort of enshrined in some of the regulation that we've we've had. Um, there's there's no real sort of wiggle room for anybody to say, you know, I I don't think that's what the intent is. The intent is absolutely clear, and the commercial forces are lining up. So the, so the sort of money once you've established that, 
the money is now lining up in favor of providing really good buckets of bits. Um, so if before the markets, and again, the markets are critical in terms of the financial markets, if the markets were saying, hey, telecom com- telecoms companies, we're kind of looking for you to provide uh, services over the top and find new source of revenue and we're we're interested in you trying to find levies and things that's kind of gone it got priced out of the i think the telecom company sort of share price and, that, and now they're building things up in other ways um sometimes actually through new kinds of content services they're still there in in some spaces but in, in other other cases just by being really really good at delivering buckets of bits and because of the tremendous success of the over-the-top internet platforms you, the markets will start to see that you know the amount of money you're going to be able to make from selling buckets of bits is going to increase from here on in. I think there was a time when everyone was super, you know, raced to the bottom on pricing. How can we sell the internet as cheaply as possible? Um, and, that, and, and I think telcos were complaining at that point that they were getting, kind of getting priced out of the market. But I think we're now probably in a phase where uh, you know there's more of a premium on quality and reliability and and, and just. You know, the value to me of an internet service, if before I was looking for that, you know, $20 a month service, why can't you just give me as cheap as possible? Now I'm willing to pay $50, $60 a month because this thing is so important to me. And over time, I'm going to be willing to pay $80 or $100 a month. Um, and I think the telecoms companies can see that. they now There is a path for them to become, I think, profitable on the back of selling buckets of bits that perhaps wasn't as obvious uh, previously to them. And the only the only exception to that uh, scenario, I think I think you're absolutely right. But the only exception to that scenario, I think, is when we look at the different video and music streaming services, where possible verticalization of those markets, where you know an access provider buys an entertainment provider, etc., something we've seen happen in waves, and sort of the pendulum swings one way and then the other. But but there is that tendency where where I think that if I was if I was doing policy today for a video streaming or a music streaming company, I would probably read up on the network neutrality debates. I would try to think yeah. about what they look like and how they work because there's competition in this space there's a lot of streaming providers and there are not as many access provider and there's a vertical instinct when it comes to investment so i think that that if you're active in those spaces it's probably useful to go back to the old discussions about the infrastructure about functional separation etc to to see how they apply in the new light uh, I, I think so, but it's really interesting. The, uh, this is one of the sort of effects of COVID that I think um, pre-COVID, it's always, it's always useful to think how the other side thinks. And I certainly think pre-COVID, we were getting quite a few noises saying, oh, but the shift to video changes everything. And, and almost saying, you know, so yeah, your net neutrality is fine, but we need to be able to levy video services because they're they are like sucking up so much bandwidth that we really can't uh, afford as telecoms access providers to just carry that for free. Then COVID hit, and everyone, oh, that was the moment when, you know, is the network going to crash? Networks held up incredibly well. So I just think it's it's just, you know, it's so much harder now. Uh, again, not been perfect, but really well. It's so much harder now, I think, for anyone to make the argument, um, well, we need to have a levy on video services uh, uh, because you know, otherwise the network will crash, which was, which was, I think, the strongest argument with policymakers. If you say that yeah. we, we need to make a levy because we want to keep our shareholders happy, they're not going to be interested. But if you say we need, we need this levy, we need, we need to be able to sort of manage internet, uh, video services better, 
because otherwise it crashes, I think a lot of them would have listened. Um, but in a sense, COVID has given us that massive video moment that says, well, this network is now pretty robust. Again, I'm going to touch wood as I say that uh, superstitiously, but it is a pretty <laughs> yes. robust network. network. And I think as I say, it's just yeah, it's much, much harder to, to sort of make a anti-net neutrality protect the network argument. Having said that, you're absolutely right. Video, video streaming services will be first in line, I think, if anyone does want to, both because they do consume a lot of bandwidth and, and candidly as well, because a lot of them are subscription services. So, so you could argue, well, you know, unlike the free-to-access web stuff, you could argue, well, these guys are sort of literally making money directly off the fact they can push stuff through my network, and and I can see they're charging ten dollars a month. So why shouldn't I have one or two of those? Um, I think they they are going to be the target if we come back to this debate. Um, and again, maybe for some of them. I don't know, but maybe for some of them, uh, it would be attractive to have that kind of exclusivity as well. Um, so there may be some that come into the market, not just the ones that are owned by telcos, but who say, well, you know, for us, maybe exclusivity is worth paying for because um, it will protect our consumer base. And that's where we get to the world where... It's the evolution of... A bit about before. Yeah. Yeah. The, the internet evolves no, no, into ahead. cable TV. No, <laughs> it does involve into cable TV. Yes, where yes, you're buying exactly, a bundle right. and now... I'm not buying a bucket of bits. I'm buying some bits and then I'm buying a bundle of services, each of which sort of is $1 or $2 and that adds up to my $50 or $60 a month. And it's easy to see how zero rating evolves into that because, you know, somebody is getting the benefit of uh, of zero rating just because of a marketing collaboration and one of their competitors walks up to the telco and says, hey, I, I no, I'm not as big a brand, but here's a bucket of money if you zero rate me as well. And there is a lot of yes. stuff that can happen there that can then lead to a payment model just because of the zero rating models already in place. And, and it, it sort of does address another thing that I think is, is in the history of technology, is something that we'll look back at with amazement. And that is the enormous amount of innovation and efficiency uh, that's been gained in streaming. And sort of the ways of shifting yes. video and music in a, uh, in a high fidelity way is, is just amazing. And it's sort of largely hidden to people because we just complain all the time. And we complain when it's 96% good or 97 or 98% good because we have such high demands for, for audio and visual. But I think what's happened in, in shuffling video and music bits around the last decade or so is, is probably one of the greater engineering feats of, of mankind. So it's not not just down to Pied Piper's algorithms. Yeah, <laughs> one doesn't know. One doesn't know. Oh God! Uh, <laughs> so um, that's because maybe a, fu a future subject, which is caching, we've mentioned a couple of yeah. times now, and that that is part of the video secret. But the, the fact that you know, internet version one, if I was running a a video streaming service, I would have a data center with all my video in it, and you, wherever in your world, would ask my data center to send you the video. And actually what's happened now is that video is probably not coming from the core data center. It's coming from from a massive array of infrastructure that's a lot, lot closer to you, um, which has its own and with predictive analytics. Interesting and... regulatory questions, yeah. Yeah, and I remember one of the first questions that I got engaged with was whether or not a cache was a copy in the intellectual property rights sense of the word copy. That was also a, a heated debate at the time. So, so network neutrality, closing this out, um, uh, not the hottest of issues, but a possibility for it to recur. And 
If anything, we should think about it in terms of developing markets and streaming services. That does, does that sound roughly right? I think partly that, and then just uh, just a close with a scary note, but the other thing that's militating against it is where governments are actually saying to their service providers, we want you to keep these people out. And you see elements of that in things like the online uh, uh, safety bill in the UK, that that um, there was the telecoms companies doing it. But I almost think that perhaps the bigger debate now is to what extent are governments going to try and prioritize services they regard as safe and clean over services that they regard as bad. And it will be government-ordered blocking and degradation that that starts to become a thing. But maybe I've opened up a whole other can of worms. Uh, <laughs> that's a very pressing note to end on, but uh, that's where we end today. Uh, this podcast can be found on your website, which is? www.regulate.tech and thank you so much for listening as always and i hope we get you to tune in next week as well thank you very much